Heavenly Father, we thank You that You do not leave us to our own devices, but You always guide us through Your Word and through the Holy Spirit, which is another manifestation of Your mighty grace. And now we commemorate that grace in giving, not from a sense of compulsion, but from a sense of great gratitude. And we do this to the King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. One announcement is that we're going to have the annual, well, not we, actually Billy and Lori are going to have the annual Blue Bonnet Festival, barbecue, lunch and fishing, hay rides, games, and kids and more <laughs> at their house. Where's Billy? There he is. Raise y'all's hand. So this is an annual thing. It gets bigger every year. And there's a, this flyer is on the bulletin over there. You can check it out. Yes. Okay. Okay, there's extras back in the back if you want to take one to uh, make sure you get the time right. <laughs> uh, so this is uh, Billy John and Lori Pruitt is giving this, and it's always a lot of fun. I'd like you to open your songbooks to page 608. See, you never know, do you? We just sang this. I don't know if y'all caught this. You did? <clears throat> it's the last verse. When I reach the river Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Kind of reads this in the picture a bit, doesn't it? This is, I, I didn't even know that this... Lion was in this song, and we were singing today, and just bong bong bells were going off all over. Make sure re remember the Israelites who were standing next to the river, and this appears to be not crossing the literal river, but crossing from this life into the next. But I, I was just a little curious about the next line. Bear me through the swelling current. Land me safe on Canaan's side. I don't think we're going to have to go through a swelling current. I think we're going to walk across on dry ground. I just thought I'd point that out to you. Okay, let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and during that time, we have the opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness that you guide us through this life that's full of traps, pitfalls, and deception. We thank you that your word puts our feet on the solid ground of truth. 
We pray that you will help us focus our attention upon your word this morning. That we can have that long-term memory that will help us to trust you all the more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Ken, I need you up here just a minute. All my PowerPoint is gone. I closed the little thing up there and it disappeared. So, okay, open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4. Okay, thank you. This is in preparation of where we're going, but before we do that, we're going to look at what we've learned in Joshua chapter 3. Because we just finished the chapter. And you can follow me up here if you'd like on the visuals. It's there, I hope. Okay. Um, Right off the bat, we saw in chapter 3 of Joshua that the Lord gave him a command to cross the river. He moved the people up to the river, and he did not know how they were going to cross yet. And it gave us the opportunity to look at the fact that God gives us commands, general commands usually, and the problem is how do we carry these commands out? We know the end game, but we have a lot of latitude in how we go about fulfilling his command and being obedient to it. And I gave three illustrations. The first one had to do with fathers being the head of the house. Now, we know that the Bible uh, has given, actually God through the Bible, has given husbands the authority in the home. And we also have other imperatives such as we are to love our wives. We are to love and provide for our wives and our children and so forth. But being the head of the home um, means that there's a lot of discernment that has to take place. Some people misconstrue this and think that being the head of the home means that you're a drill sergeant barking out orders. Of course, that's not the case. And others never use their authority and they become doormats. And that's not what it is either. And so there is some things that you have to use, discernment as to how in your particular home, with your family, how you're going to carry those things out. This is the illustration that goes along with Joshua when he was going across the river. He didn't know exactly how to do it, but he knew that you had to be at least close to the river to cross it. So he brings the people up, and then they have a a day where they're going to consecrate themselves. They're going to focus on the great miracle that God was going to perform for them. The next illustration had to do with parents using corporal punishment. Not a popular subject, especially these days, but the Bible says there is a time... And there are circumstances where parents are to use corporal punishment. Well, again, that's the end game, but there's a lot of questions that have to be answered. 
when do you use it? Certainly you don't use it every time. Uh, uh, Johnny spills his milk. You wouldn't spank him for that. He's a child. He's still not really coordinated. Uh, some people never use it. But if you do decide you're going to obey God and rear your ch children in the admonition of the Lord and teach them to respect authority, there may be times that you have to use corporal punishment. But how do you do it? What do you implement? A spoon, a belt, a, a switch, and where are you going to do it? And how are you going to manage this with a child that doesn't necessarily uh, give in to the idea that he's going to get a spanking? And so all these things are, are issues that we have to use discernment on. And the last one is, I said here, teens leaving the wrong crowd. But it doesn't have to be teens. There are times that we are instructed by the Bible to separate from others. Well, how do you do that? The end, the end result is that you have to do it in order to be obedient. But how do you do it? Are you going to do it in person? Are you going to do it over the phone? Are you, you want to do it in such a way that the person doesn't think that you're better than thou, this type of thing? So there are uh, issues. This is just a few issues to demonstrate that Joshua was facing something that we face nearly every day. We want to obey God. We want to please Him. But there are a lot of variables in there, discretion that we must use to do that. So what, what do we do when we're trying to obey a general command? These are the... These are the things. First of all, we do what? Pray, always. No matter what happens, the first thing you want to do is pray. The second thing is to search the Scriptures. What do the Scriptures say about this issue? The third thing is to analyze the situation. Just what is wrong? For instance, if you're a, a father or a husband and your house is not in order, what is the problem? And husbands and fathers... Where do you look to first? Who's the first person you look at to find out what's wrong? Yourself, right. You find out, am I being a good leader? Am I being, am I being objective? Am I being loving? Am I showing the, my wife and the children uh, that they are loved? Do I praise them when they need praise? All these type of things. And then the next thing you ask questions. You want to go to people who look like they are doing it right. And this would be believers, maybe mature believers, who have had the benefit of being uh, applying God's Word for a long period of time. You ask them, look, what would you suggest in this particular area? And then the last thing is do it. Step out in faith. Pull the trigger. Do whatever is necessary to be obedient, to obey God's laws, to, to His mandates. We got all this off of the first verse, if you remember. But don't worry, we're not going to go through all this in every verse. But there's a lot there. I see some of you still taking notes. I'll let it stay there for just a moment. The next thing we're going to look at is that victory is built on victory. Whenever you have a spiritual victory, it gives you the foundation and the motivation for further victories. Oh, no, that's the next one. That's number four. Number three is, we'll get there, the Ark of the Covenant represented Jesus Christ. Remember, the priests were instructed to take the Ark and to go before the people, and they actually went to the river, and when their feet touched the Jordan, the waters 
parted, they walked across on dry ground. And the people were to keep their eyes on the ark. The ark represented Jesus Christ. We went over that in some detail. We are to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, the solution, and not on the problem. They had a big problem. They were walking across on dry ground, but they kept looking at the ark. I'm not sure about this, but when it says that the water was piled up, it was piled up about 15 miles away. I don't know what to take of that exactly. I don't know if... See, the, the water would keep flowing at least to that point where it was piled up. And it's possible. I'm not saying that this actually is the way it went, went down, but it's possible that the water was held up and it built up and it was just getting higher and higher. And somehow maybe the people could look 15 miles away and see that water getting higher and higher. And what this is, the illustration is here, they were not to look at the water, they were to look at the ark. They were looking at Jesus Christ. Of course, great illustration is when Peter got out of the boat on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus Christ was walking on the water and he walked on the water. He kept his eyes on the Lord and he was in no problem until he looked down at the water, the water representing uh, trouble, judgment, if you will. And as soon as he looked down at the, at the water, what happened? He started to sink. Isn't that a perfect illustration of us with the problems that we have? We all have a list of problems, don't we? I doubt that there's a person here that can say, raise your hand and say, Pastor, I don't have any problems at all. Well, I'd say, you got a problem. <laughs> You're living in a delusion. <laughs> so we all have problems. The idea is to keep our focus on the Lord. Now, here's the spiritual victory is built on spiritual victory. Gives you the motivation, the momentum. You see, when the Israelites crossed the river on dry ground and they got to the other side, when they, when they stepped up on that ground on the, on the other side, they were actually stepping up on a higher spiritual plateau because they just had a huge spiritual victory. They trusted the Lord to walk across the river and when they did, they had confidence in their Lord and their leader, Joshua, that whatever was on the other side was no big deal because they had a spiritual victory. They, now they could trust the Lord all the more. And they would need that trust because they were about to go against these heathens, these pagans who would like nothing more than to wipe them out. Spiritual victories are based on what God does for us, not what we do for Him. I just want to make sure that you understand when we're talking about a victory, it's not something that we do that matters. It's always about what God does. And we're going to see that an illustration of God gets the glory because it's His victory. And we benefit from that. But when I'm talking about spiritual victories, it's not the great things that we do for God. It's always the great things that God does for us. The fifth thing has to do with God makes sure that He receives the glory. Now, I didn't give you this verse before, so if you had notes before, this verse you haven't seen. And so let's 
let's look at this one. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Now, why is that? And we saw that God made sure that he was going to get the glory in all this. That's one reason the people had to stay about a half a mile from the ark so they could see that no person, no entity, nothing got in there and helped the Lord with this great miracle. And so he was making sure that he received the glory. Now, here's the thing. He does it for us. Now, if we make sure we receive glory in our human capacity, we see that as being conceited, being arrogant. However, with God, it's just the opposite. You see, God does not have to seek glory. He is glory. And the reason he makes sure that he receives all the glory when, he, when a miracle is done is for our benefit so that we will trust him all the more. When we realize that it was God and God alone who provides for our so great salvation and all the other things that we see in the Bible, then we can trust that he can handle our problems and we don't co-op with God to do these things. He does it himself. And we looked at two illustrations. The first one was Elijah. Elijah face, facing the 400... Or, uh, 50 prophets, 450 prophets of Baal. I don't have the verse here, but if you'd like to mark it down, if you weren't here and like to read that area, it's uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 21 through 46. This is the account of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And what did they do? They poured water on the sacrifice, on the wood, on the altar. They dug a trench, filled the water, I mean the trench with water. Why? did Elijah instruct them to do that? Because he wanted to make sure that when his God answered his simple prayer and a miracle was performed, fire came down out of heaven and it consumed the sacrifice, the wood, the altar, the dust, licked up all the uh, water and it even uh, burned the stones. I don't know how burned stones. I guess they were melted or whatever happened. But God wanted to make sure he got the credit. Why? Because then the people will know because they said, we know that the Lord, He is our God. That's why He had to receive the credit. And then we went to uh, illustration of David uh, facing Goliath. And this is in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 31 through 50. And remember, what did David do before he went out there to face Goliath? He was talking to his brothers, and his brothers were trying to put him down. And he said, I'll fight him. And news got to Saul, and so they Saul summoned David. And he said, what are you? You're just a kid. What can you do? And he says, well, you don't know, but uh, I didn't let it be known to anybody, but uh, the Lord allowed me to kill a lion and a bear. And this was hand-to-hand combat with this lion. He grabbed him by his mane and let him have it. So... This got Saul's attention. Saul was going to say, well, maybe this, this, this uh, young man is qualified. But go ahead and put, your, put my armor on. Saul actually put his armor on Saul, I mean on David, and what did David do? He took it off. Now, why is that a point? And it says several times throughout the Scripture that he killed Goliath without a sword. Now, he used Goliath's own sword to cut his head off, but he didn't go into battle with Saul's armor nor with his sword. Now, why was that important? Because 
David said when he was facing Goliath, the battle is the Lord's. The Lord will give me victory over you today. If he'd have taken the war of the armor, then Saul would have strutted about and said, well, yeah, you know, he's just a kid, but he had my armor on it. He had my armor on. And so we see these illustrations to where God demands and receives and actually completely and totally deserves all the glory. And what's the... Remember when we were in Second uh, Peter, we saw this over and over. God gets the glory and we get the... All right. <laughs> I'm so glad that just wasn't a blank space there. That made my day. Okay, so this is what we see with regards to uh, chapter 3. That's some of the things that we saw in chapter 3. There's actually uh, more, but that will suffice. Now, chapter 4. Chapter 4 is much more interesting. There's a lot more to it than what originally meets the eye. We find that in uh, chapter 4, a whole chapter is devoted to essentially memorializing the crossing of the Jordan. A whole chapter. And we were talking about God being receiving the glory. And we'll read through this in, in just a moment. But it, it's interesting that a whole chapter would be devoted to this. Also, I want you to uh, recognize, I had this as a side note here. The Jordan was crossed not on, through dry ground, not only by... Joshua and all the Israelites at that time, it was crossed again. Actually, it was crossed two more times. Uh, two people crossed on dry ground, and that was Elijah and Elisha, and that's in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 8 through 14. Did you know that? So, it's not just a fluke that God could do this one time. He can do it any time He wants to. I don't even know if he had to point his finger. I don't know how he made the waters pile up 15 miles away. He, he may have just took his finger and went like that 15 miles away and the water piles up. I mean, that's all he would have to do. He might not even have to point his finger. He might just say, stop, water stop, or he might think. I don't know how he did it, but it wasn't a, a, a chore for him. It wasn't difficult. He did it two more times. In 2 Kings chapter uh, 2, verse 8, actually it's verse 8 and 14. Elijah and Elisha go across the river, and then Elisha is taken up in a whirlwind of chariots, fire, and so forth, and Elijah goes back, and neither one of them got wet. How about that? What a great God. Okay, let's go to chapter 4, and let's start by reading... I don't know if I'll read the whole thing. I might read the whole thing because I'm teaching this a little different. Last time I went verse by verse, but we're going to look at this more uh, conceptually. Joshua chapter 4. Now it came about when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan that the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, Take for yourself twelve men from the people one man from each tribe and command them saying take up for yourselves 12 stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan 
from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. Now, this is still going on. This is, in other words, the people are crossing the river and the Lord told Joshua, the 12 men. Remember when we addressed the 12 men in chapter 3? I said, that's just a parenthetical. We're going to see them, uh, see them again in chapter 4. Uh, he's, he's saying these, everybody has, has crossed, and now he says, you 12 guys go back out there. Well, where was the ark, by the way? It was in the middle of the river on dry ground. And he said, go back and get these 12 stones. And he's gonna, they're going to take these stones. And these aren't little pebbles. These are big stones. One reason they had to choose particular men uh, with this, the 12 that were going to be chosen, no doubt they had to be pretty strong, probably pretty big guys to carry these big stones because if the river was a mile wide and it was in the middle of the river, then they were going to have to carry this stone a half a mile to get to the bank. I don't know if you've ever picked up a stone. Uh, you do any gardening. You ever make, it, make a, a, a pathway out of stones? And you go to pick up a, a stone. It's not really all that big. It's pretty thin. You pick it up. <coughs> you, just, you just go a few steps and let it drop. Well, these guys had to cart it for a half mile, possibly. So uh, they're, they go out into the river where the priests were, mid-part. And, and now what is something we notice about this? They, they were the only ones that were able to get within that half-mile radius. Remember, everybody had to stay at least a half a mile but in this case, they broke the, that uh, particular mandate and were able to go and pick up the rocks and take them back. Now, I'm not going to go over right now what this is for, but it's fascinating why this was done. We'll get to that later. Verse 4, So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, Cross again, to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the son of Israel. So there's 12 tribes. There was 12 men that went to do this. He says, number six, underline this part. Let this be a sign. There, he's not just doing this so these guys can get their exercise. Let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? In fact, circle that whole verse because that's what this entire chapter is about. Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Underline that, a memorial means to remember something. And thus the sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded and took up the twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord spoke to Joshua according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And they carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there. So we're getting, we're getting stones out of the middle of the Jordan, carrying them over and going to put them in a place where they were going to lodge. Now we're going to see later in chapter 5, that this place is Gilgal. It's on the outskirts of Jericho.
Verse 9, Then Joshua set the twelve stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place of... Did I read verse 8 yet? What was that? No, okay, let me, let me go back to verse 8. Something didn't look right there. Okay. And thus the sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord spoke to Joshua according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. They carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing, and they they are to this day. <laughs> what is this doing? He's putting a, a stack of stones out in the middle of the Jordan. He took stones out of the middle of the Jordan and carried them over and put them on the bank where they were going to lodge. And he also took stones and put them in the middle of the Jordan. Curious, is it not? It has great spiritual significance. Now, verse 10. For the priests who carried the ark were standing in the middle of the Jordan and everything was completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hurried and crossed. And it came about when all the people had finished crossing that the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed before the people. You know, they, they, they came before, but they came after. After everyone had gone over and crossed, then they're going to come out of the water. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over in battle array before the sons of Israel, just as Moses had, had spoken to them about 40,000 equipped for war, crossed for battle before the Lord to the desert plains of Jericho. Now this, you remember these were the tribes that were on the east side of the Jordan? that were, But they were commanded by Moses, okay, you're not going to go over there where the Canaanites are, but you need to go over there with the rest and fight until you have settled it. Then you can go back to your homes. Well, they did this, and there's 40,000 of them. And I think one reason, and remember, they were the first ones to cross. This is only a smart tactical move anyway, because if you go to the other side and there's any trouble there, you don't want women and children, you want the warriors. They would be able to take care of business if there was any trouble. There wasn't any, but this would be the prudent thing to do. Verse 14. On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel so that they revered him just as they had revered Moses all the days of his life. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests who carry the ark of the testimony that they come up from the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. Notice that Everybody does what they're told. They were told, go out and stand in the middle of the, of the priests were in the middle of the uh, Jordan. And they stand there. And when all the people go across, they don't say, well, I guess it's time for us to go. Let's go. No, they stood there and they waited for their next command. Joshua was a, was a great leader and the Lord was telling him what to tell him. So verse 17, so Joshua commanded the priests, saying, Come out from the Jordan, come up from the Jordan. And it came about when the priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come up from the middle of the Jordan, and the soles of the, feet's pre, uh, the priest's feet were lifted up. <laughs> the priest's feet were lifted up 
to the dry ground that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and went over all its banks as before. Isn't that amazing? For people who say this is just was a, a landslide that blocked the Jordan, yeah, immediately when the priest's feet touched the water, it, it, the water disappeared. And the moment that they came out of the Jordan and touched the bank, the waters flooded again. I'd say that's more than a coincidence. Verse 19. Now the people came up before the Jordan on the tenth of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the east, eastern side, edge of the Jericho. Now underline the tenth of the first month. That has great significance also. It sounds like, well, it's just a date. Well, it is a date, but it has great significance. We'll point that out later. And those 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask where their fathers, ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Underline that, that whole part, or maybe that whole verse there. See, again, he's talking about a memorial. This is for a purpose. And when the children ask you, what are these stones about? Then, verse 22, you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the water of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea. See, he's correlating that with another dry ground crossing, which he dried up before us until we had crossed that all the people of the earth may know. Now, that's important to you. All the people of the earth may know. Why is he making a, the whole chapter for a memorial? Why is this such a big deal? Because the whole earth, everyone needs to know about this. That the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now, that's the chapter. And there are some things that we want to look at. First of all, uh, you, you remember in chapter 3 there was a pattern. We had, first of all, God uh, is doing the speaking and he, he instructs Joshua. And then Joshua pass, passes the message on to the people. And then we see the fulfillment of it. It's, it's hard to follow this if you're trying to think of it in a chronological sense. It's not chronological. It's logical, but not chronological. So here are some verses that demonstrate this is, another, this is a pattern simpler, uh, similar to what we saw in chapter 3. In verses 1 through 3, God is doing the speaking. In verses 4 through 7, Joshua passes the message on to the people. So... In verses 1 through 3, we have God talking to Joshua, giving him instructions. Verses 4 through 7, Joshua passes the message on to the people. In verses 8 through 14, we see the fulfillment of it. Now, that pattern repeats itself, starting with verse 15. Verse 15 and 16, that same cycle occurs. God is doing the speaking in verse 15. Then in verse 17, Joshua does the speaking. He's passing along what God told him. And then in verses 18 through 24, we have the fulfillment of it. 
Y'all got it? Okay. Now, this is a very important point, this next point, to, to get the whole flavor of where we're going right now. This is, the fa- this is the point. God has not performed miracles in every generation. You've got to remember that. God has not performed miracles in every generation. You can, go, you can start with Adam and you can go through the Bible. And there are segments of time where God performs no miracles. We're in a, in a time right now that God does not perform the miracles that, of this kind. I'm not saying he doesn't perform miracles. There are people who have illnesses that are, uh, they, they put them in hospice and say, just make them comfortable, they're as good as gone. And the next thing you know, they're, they're well. They, they don't have any symptoms or anything. Well, that's a miracle, and I'm not saying that God isn't in the miracle business, but not of this type. Not where everyone can see this miracle like the crossing of the Red Sea or the crossing of the Jordan and so forth. So it's important to note that he does not perform miracles in every generation. He concentrates his miracles over certain areas of history and then, listen to this, depends on transferring that knowledge, that historical memory, on to future generations. That's why this chapter is so important as a memorial because this is how people in generations where they don't see a miracle like this are able to have faith because it has been transferred it has been preserved and it's either in we'll see the how how does god do this well sometimes he does it by a a a memorial it's like um when you have a, 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 a column here of stones, uh, that would certainly be one way that he does it. Uh, he teaches it through monuments, by rituals, and through testimony, whether it be written or verbal. So to get the, the reason why this whole chapter is going on is that we have to realize that We are in a time when God isn't performing these kind of miracles. And there have been generations throughout history. What can they depend on in order to have what they need to trust the Lord? Well, it is this recorded history. I hate it when people say, uh, did you learn any Bible stories today? Because stories to me sound like, well, this is uh, Mother Goose. Uh, This is fiction. This isn't real historical accounts. And we're going to see that God does not teach history the way most students receive history lessons in public schools today. We'll get to that in just a moment. So, <clears throat> it's imperative that historical memory be transferred, transferred to future generations. In other words, there would be no basis of faith. And chapter 4 is about God... Preserving a historical memory of the great miracle that he performed. And he always does this because it is the lifeblood of future generations who do not see the miracle. That's why this is so important. Verses 1 through 5 give the details as to what was done to preserve this historical memory. How many of you remember taking history in school? Well, you know, history should be a a phenomenal course 
But if you were like me, uh, I, I didn't care for it so much because they weren't really teaching. Most teachers today don't have a clue about how to teach, especially when it comes to history. Because history, it was all about dates. It was all about some battle and some bridge or some place or something like this. And what I did was what most people did. We would, right before the test on Friday, we would cram. And we get all these facts in our minds so that we could give the right answers on the test. If you ask us a week later, what was that test about or what did we learn, we were blank. We could only remember it long enough to take the test. And after that, well, you could be a straight-A student and, and complete a course in history. And someone come back and they say it's American history. And they say, what did you learn in your history course? Well, you might, even if you made a straight A at the end of the course, there might not be much that you remember because that's not the way to teach. And that's not the way that God teaches. God teaches, like I said, through, through monuments. If you see a monument, and they, these, I don't know how long these stones stay, stood there outside of Gilgal, but every time people would pass there and they would look, they, what is that about? There's memory trace there. Well, that commemorates the crossing of the Jordan by the Israelites when God parted the waters and they walked across on dry ground. Wow! Forty years later, you could ask that child, do you remember those stones you saw way back then that were on the other side of the Jordan? Yeah, what, about, what were those about? Oh, that was when the Israelites crossed the Jordan. So you would remember that. And it's very important that we remember it because this is how... We have spiritual victories because we don't see the, the miracles ourselves. We depend on that historical, preserved memory trace, in the, whether it's a monument or by rituals or by word. Here's an illustration. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 24. Now this is about commemorating the Passover. You remember the Passover. I hope you remember the Passover. This is when the Israelites were in Egypt and you had the ten plagues. And the last plague was the demise of the firstborn. And that was, by the way, that wasn't only, that was anybody. That, that included the Jews, that included the, the Egyptians, that included the animals, it included everything. And we know that God gave them specific instructions as to what to do to avoid losing your firstborn. And when the Jews did that, and even the Egyptians did it, didn't matter who did it, when they did the prescribed specific instructions, when they followed them, then they would not lose the firstborn. And that's what in verse 24, he's, this is what this is picking up on. This is the feast of Passover was about that. And verse 24, it says, And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. And it will come about when you enter the land which the Lord will give you as he promised that you will observe this rite. Do you know what happened? Four days after the Israelites crossed the Jordan, they had Passover. And that date, going across on the 10th, when you go to Exodus chapter 12, verse 2, was the day 
that they were to take a lamb and set it aside and watch it, make sure that they had it was prepared and was qualified to be slaughtered, to be sacrificed on that Passover day. Now, do you think that this crossing of the Jordan was just a mere coincidence that when they got to the other side of the river, it was the exact day that they take the lamb and they would, they would watch it and prepare it to be sacrificed? And four days later, they were sacrificing that lamb on the day of Passover. There's more significance than that. I shouldn't let that cat out of the sack yet, but I just thought I would. See, you see a date like that and you say, so what? When you do a little research and you start looking at things, it has great significance because what did the, what did the ark, what did it represent? Jesus Christ. And, and when we start putting these dates together and we go here and we see that you're, you're to do this as an ordinance forever, the timing of it and everything spoke of Jesus. Every, it's all about Jesus Christ. And He is our Savior. He is our Deliverer not only in the greatest sense, provided our so great salvation and we have eternal life, God's own righteousness and so forth, because of who He is, but also He is our deliverer in time. But let me get on with verse... Uh, we're in Exodus chapter uh, 12. and verse 25, And it will come about when you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised that you shall observe this rite. Well, that was four days after they crossed the Jordan. And it will come about when your children will say to you, what does this rite mean to you? Do you see these questions each time? That you, that you, will, uh, you shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the house of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. They worshipped. Were they at the Passover? No. But they worshipped. They trusted. They had motivation spiritually because it was recorded in a ritual. Then the sons of Israel went and did so and the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Aaron, and so they did. Look at uh, chapter 13. You're in Exodus right now. Look at Exodus cha chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15. Now this is a, a, one of the rituals they had. It's the dedication of the firstborn where they would uh, kill the firstborn animals. And when it's talking about, a, in, I think it's in verse 13. Yeah, verse 13 it says don't, uh, if you have a donkey, if that's, if that's all you have, you couldn't, a donkey was an unclean animal. It couldn't be sacrificed. So they said, uh, use a, a lamb instead. Replace the donkey with a lamb, sacrifice the lamb. I'm just saying that because I know some of you read a little before and a little after. You know, don't do that. Because if you're reading verse 13, trying to figure out what that means with a donkey, and I'm over here in 14 and 15, you won't hear a word I say. Verse 14. And it shall be when your sons ask you in time to come, saying, What is this? This is the, the ritual that they had of killing the firstborn of these animals and sacrificing them. What is this? Then you shall say to him, With a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. 
So we see even in ritual that this is a historical memory trace. And it goes on. It's perpetual. And they would see this. this. Do you understand how great this is as a way of learning, a way of teaching? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 6. And these words which I am commanding you, to, uh, commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Uh, this is talking about the practice the Jews still do this to a... a a degree, uh, wear phylacteries. Sometimes you'll see some, a funny thing when they're in the synagogue on their head, be a band and a little tube here, maybe on their arms. These are scriptures that uh, reminds them of what's going on. Verse 9, And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. See, this is how this important historical accounts are remembered. They, they were to teach them diligently when you... This, this said, look at verse 7. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall write them on your doorposts and so forth. This, this is so important. And how many parents are doing that today? Do you see? This is how you teach your children. Some parents, even Christian parents, parents that go to church, the only time they talk about anything of a spiritual nature is when they're at church, and sometimes not even then. What you should be doing is talking about these doctrinal principles continually. If you sit down and you watch a TV program with your children, what should you do? You should be pointing out uh, biblical principles. Now, this is what this, this person could have done. That wasn't the biblical... Now, there, that's, the, that's human viewpoint, but this, this one over here... Uh, he was using divine viewpoint. If you go to a movie, if you go to a ball game, and somebody has a, a, a bad attitude, you can point out to your child. You see, it's so easy to get in this and have a bad attitude. I, can, I don't know why this just flashed in my mind. When I used to play Little League Baseball, I hated to strike out. And I had an attitude when I did. And it, my, my dad was the coach. And one time, uh, I struck out, and I was so mad, I threw my bat. I must have threw it 30 feet. And it was stomping off, and he came out there. He was in the dugout. He came out there, and he said, go get that bat. I had to walk out there and put it in the deal. Now go over there and apologize to that umpire. And I had to do that in front of everybody. That was a memory trace. I still remember it. <laughs> Guess what? That broke me of throwing my bat. Anyhow, you, you see what I'm talking about here continually we are to talk about the Lord and His great principles, His power, His might, what He has done, and what He's going to do. You can continually teach your children. Because if you teach the way they normally teach history, they throw a few facts at you and then you forget about it 
they're not going to remember it, and they desperately need to be thinking this human viewpoint. And the only way it's going to happen is what God is instructing the Israelites. You do it all the time. When you rise, when you, if you're going on a walk, constantly be talking to your children. And I'm not talking about preaching. Communicate with them. How are things going? What happened at school today? Well, so-and-so, so-and-so. Okay, well, what's the divine viewpoint there? What's the doctrinal solution to that problem? And you talk to them. Are you doing that? Guilty faces. It's hard to do, isn't it? But it's absolutely imperative because they are bombarded every day with the filth of this world. And it will impact their lives. And they will be impressed by this unless you counter it with something that is more powerful and the Word of God and His principles are more powerful than anything of the deception that Satan can throw at them. You don't want them buying the lies. If you don't want them buying the lies, you have to tell them the truth over and over and explain it to them. Well, I took so much time on that. I'm not... Well, let's... I'm already past time. Let's just go. We're in Deuteronomy 6. Let's look at verse 20 through 25. When your sons ask you in time to come, saying... What do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgment mean which the Lord commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before the eyes of, uh, against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. And he brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land which he sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes. See, this is command. Do it. To observe them. To fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before our Lord our God, just as He has commanded us. Now, that's not imputed righteousness. That's just doing the right thing. Boy, I just, the, the time is gone. And there's, look at all this. These, these Psalms, all these verses here that we're going to go to, they just get better and better. And I don't know whether to tell you some of the best right now before I leave, before we leave. I have to do it. I, I just I know because if I don't you you won't you, you I don't know if you, what will happen anyway I'll just tell you this I'll tell you in just a general sense and I'll give you more detail next Sunday if God teaches through monuments rituals and testimonies can you think of a ritual that we observe that continue to teach us something about what happened we weren't there, but we are to do it how long? Until Christ returns. Of course, I'm talking about the, the Lord's Supper or communion. This is the way the Lord teaches. This is the way we need to teach our children. 
Because surely when, you, when we have communion, we have the table down here with the white tablecloth and we have the shiny things on top and people take the little cup and they take the little bread and the, the children say, Mommy, what, what is that for? Oh, this is what we do at church. Go play. No. You need to sit down and explain to them, just as I've shown you a few cases and there's more, where we are obliged, we are commanded to do this because this is how our young people, this is how we are able to trust our great and mighty God by the preservation of historical facts. I'd like everyone now to please bow your heads. If anyone is in doubt as to the power of God's Word, the power of what He has already done, this is the time to focus. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, went to the cross and paid for your sins. He died. He was buried. And He was resurrected. He is alive today and offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it. It's not about how good you are. It's not about your works. It's about what God has already done for you. And you can receive the free gift of eternal life right now, right where you sit, by simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in Him rather than your own works. In that moment, you'll be born again. Your ticket to heaven is guaranteed. Now it's time to get cracking and get ready to cross the Jordan. Father, we thank You for this time You've given us to fellowship in Your Word. We pray that it will sink deep into our souls, that it will be at the ready whenever we are confronted, whenever we have opportunity to tell others what a mighty God we have. And we pray it in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.